following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of July 26th, 2021. On this week's show, lots of Olympics. We'll discuss the reality of staging the games during a pandemic, the masked athletes, the positive COVID tests, the stadiums void of fans. And we'll also look at the competition so far with some American favorites, including the former Dream Team, the women's soccer team, and the omnipotent women's gymnastics team, all looking various degrees of wobbly. Finally, we'll talk about the latest college sports money grab, Texas and Oklahoma angling to join the SEC. I'm the author of the book's Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and the landmark Wall Street Journal column from the 2004 Athens Olympics, a game we ought to play about team handball. I'm in Washington, as is my pal Josh Levine, who is Slate's national editor, the author of The Queen, and the host of Slow Burn Season 4 and the new podcast series One Year, 1977. Hey, Josh. Hey. I was dismayed that you didn't work Team Handball into the intro, and then undismayed when you worked it into your self-description. I'm a pro. What can I say? We expect nothing less from you. Joining us from Palo Alto, California, it's the host of Slow Burns Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6 about the 1991 beating of Rodney King by L.A. Police, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Hey, good morning. I, I didn't prepare anything for handball. I didn't know that there was going to be handball this morning, so... There's always handball. Said, okay, it's Olympics. Yeah. You didn't watch Germany. Wait, no. Who was it? I can't remember. <laughs> Spain, Germany? Wow. I don't know. You're real fan. This is, yeah, this is your source for handball news today. Yeah. <laughs> Denmark was crushing Japan when I turned it off. So you don't know who was playing and you turned it off. I Just know. digging my yourself a deeper, are, a deeper my hole. as a handball czar are, uh, are clearly taking a beating right now. I'll bounce back. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. The Olympics officially began last Friday with an opening ceremony containing the usual elements, costumes from the host culture, complicated and enthusiastic choreography, plenty of small children, that oiled-up Tongan dude, and vacuous sportocratic rhetoric from IOC President Tomas Bach. This is the unifying power of sport. This is the message of solidarity, the message of peace, and the message of resilience. This gives all of us hope for our future journey together. But if you were inside the billion-dollar stadium, empty of fans because of the coronavirus pandemic, apparently you could hear protesters with bullhorns outside screaming, Stop the Olympics. Josh, let the Potemkin Village Games of the 32nd Olympiad begin. When the actual sports start, our focus usually shifts from the crass and ethically dubious organization of the games to the games themselves. Is your cognitive dissonance any different this time around? I want to start by saying I feel like Tomas Bach actually is the closest ever to having the sportocrat voice. 
of any sportocrat. Uh, mm-hmm. I would defer to you on that, Stefan, but he does feel like the full embodiment of sportocracy in uh, voice and actions. He's, he's the full package, yeah. A great, great profile of him in the New York Times last week, if you want to get your full dose of his uh, career sportocracy. Okay, back to your question. So the thing that makes it difficult to have the kind of uh, blinders on that, that one typically does during the Olympics is the who tested positive for COVID, who's wearing masks, who isn't wearing masks. And there's the swimmer, Michael Andrew, who is a, a whole thing unto himself with like his kind of crazy sports dad with his spiral notebooks, keeping track of every split this dude has ever had since he's been in a, a pool for, uh, you know, a billion billions of, of splits. But this guy who's, you know, we're supposed to be interested in and excited about as one of these new American swimming hopefuls, we learned in uh, recent days, didn't get vaccinated. And my reason behind it is I didn't want to put anything in my body that I didn't know how I would potentially react to. Um, you know, as an athlete on the elite level, everything we do is very, uh, very calculated and understood. And um, for me in the training cycle, especially in to trials, I didn't want to risk any days out. And this is the kind of, rhetoric that you often hear, but it's like been now appropriated to talk about the vaccine. And so there's always this kind of like trickery and feeling like you're getting sucked in to root for people that you haven't heard of and in sports that you don't necessarily follow or care about. But it's this like willfulness, like you want to be sucked in. The reason that we watch the Olympics is that we want to like kind of have this allegiance and it feels fun to follow these things and follow these athletes and root for these people. Um, but Joel, I mean, I found myself getting pulled out of that a little bit more than I usually do. And actually thinking about the Olympics with my conscious brain rather than my unconscious one. Well, yeah, I think it's really difficult to divorce the games from the circumstances under which they're being held. I mean, how can you? There's not fans in the venues, right? Um, that's not what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be a party, a celebration. You know, you should be seeing and hearing people in the background from all these places all over the world, um, you know, sort of joining in and, and, and making us, you know, the TV spectacle that it is. And it's just not there. And it, I mean, it even, you know, we had Matoko Rich on last week. You know, in a story she just wrote, she talked about how the, the opening ceremony itself was more somber than it's been in the past. And I, you know, I mean, I don't know how many people watch the opening ceremony from start to finish. Um, I don't, <laughs> unfortunately, but, um, the, the parts that I did catch, I was just like, yeah, this just doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. And part of that is you don't have a stadium full of people like you normally would. Um, and I, you know, you would have thought that maybe we would have gotten over that after the last year and four or five months of, you know, games staged before nobody. Right. Um, but it's it, like this is different. This is not like a Milwaukee versus Chicago NBA game in mid-February where there's nobody there. Like this is, you know, this is the uh, most. Are you referring to our NBA champion, Milwaukee Bucks? Um, yeah, well, I, not, this being is, this ro- is, not being a road draw. This, yeah, this is presumably yeah Milwaukee playing in Chicago. Uh, so, <laughs> <Got> <laughs> yeah, it. not not in not in the Deer District. Um, 
but yeah, so I, you know, it, that part of it is just sort of hard to ignore. But I think, Stefan, you, you made this point in the intro that everybody is sort of counting on the focus moving to the games themselves once they get started. And that's, that's the way I think of it. You know, once the IOC and Japan's Olympic Committee showed they had the audacity to launch the games in the first place, then it's just media programming, right? Right. And I think that was the great miscalculation. And that's what we're starting to see, that for all of the, you know, don't look behind the curtain, it's impossible not to look behind the curtain because the announcers are saying there are no fans here. And the athletes are saying, you know, the environment just isn't the same. And it's impossible to ignore because they built all these, you know, the the billion-dollar stadium that that the opening ceremony was held in um, and all of these other sports-specific venues from the skateboard parks to the volleyball beaches. And when there's nobody there, you recognize in greater, starker reality how fraudulent this all feels. And that's where I think the Olympics messed up. And I do think that they under or they miscalculated the value here. Maybe nobody cares. I mean, look, maybe as long as NBC can sell ads, the IOC is going to be happy. Um, But it is inescapable that the environment that these are occurring in, which I think that the IOC grandiosely thought we can paper over once people start shooting and kayaking and playing handball. And I think what we've seen from the first few days of the games are that, yeah, I mean, sure, we're going to focus and get excited about that fantastic 400 meters freestyle race between Katie Ledecky and Ariane Titmus. Um, and we're going to watch the U.S. men's basketball team lose games and get worked up about that. But ultimately... It's unavoidable that this would have been better later when you could put people in the stands and the the words of unifying countries and the world through sport would actually have a tiny bit more resonance than they do under the current circumstances. I've got great news for you, Stefan. The Winter Olympics are coming in six months, so you'll you'll have a, an opportunity for another Olympics just around the corner when I'm sure uh, the virus will be totally oh, under yeah. control yeah. And, and everything will be great, and we can um, you know enjoy the ha- the half pipe and uh, the luge uh, with with full fan enthusiasm but I, I mean i think there are certain sports where it works more and less well and that the absence of fans is more and less obvious i mean gymnastics i do not mean in any way to minimize the athletic feats and it's fascinating to watch regardless um to both see how simone biles and, and everybody else does but just um to see them do these these amazing things but it's a television show. I mean, more, mm-hmm. more than any of these other um, events, it's a television show. And a lot of people were noting, like, Jordan Childs, who was touted as, like, Biles and Childs. Like, they're, they're the new, like, American super team. She finishes 40th in qualification. And there's you just have, like, absolutely no idea what happened because NBC decides, for whatever reason, not to focus on her. It's a television show. Um, and given that the lack of crowds is extremely noticeable, and I think it's it's noticeable to the athletes and to the you know media that's been in the arena as well. Um, but swimming, it's like the I don't think it, maybe it would be like marginally better to have people yelling, 
um, during the swimming race, but does it really matter to our, can we tell when we're watching on television that there aren't fans in the stands? Um, did that make the Ledecky Titmus race any worse? I was, maybe it did. And, and maybe I'm just like, I don't know what I'm missing, but it seemed like in gymnastics and there just, there are certain sports where it's more obvious and noticeable than in others. Well, I definitely think that, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how many of us are in the habit of watching swimming meets or, you know, gymnastics meets. I'm watching, I'm watching swimming just constantly. Oh, like, I bet. Yeah. Right. Every, anytime you're talking, I'm just like actually staring an inch to the left so I can watch swimming. It's just like in his, in your browser, you've got tiger droppings <laughs> and then you've got like you know, US swimming. Yeah, swim, 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 swim droppings. Swim, swim, swim droppings.com, which is probably, uh, you know, runs afoul of COVID protocol, but no, I think you're. I think you're right about that in some ways, Josh. But um, I just think it's really hard to sort of divorce the overall tenor and mood of the Olympics from like what we see. And even if like you can't quite tell the difference between fans and no fans at a swimming meet, I just think that mood sort of cast a pall over this whole thing. But you know, we we do have to admit that like we're we've sort of banged on this for a while, and like maybe we don't represent you know the stereotypical Olympic viewer, right? Um, so maybe we're over, I'm, I'm overestimating how much that actually matters, but you know what? It will matter. And when people will notice when the Olympics host their premier events, which will be at the track. And when they're not fans at the track, at the track stadium, it's going to become that much more apparent, um, what these games are missing. And actually, you know, I'm going to want to hear, and I don't know how many, you know, I haven't seen that many stories about it yet, but the experience that the athletes are having there, because, like for me, like if I was going to be in the Olympics, it seems like the Olympic village and like the experience of being around and, you know, having the buzz of the nation and the people around you there is like a huge part of it. And they're sort of missing all that. And, you know, I, I, I follow a few Olympic athletes and a lot, I get a lot of, you know, Instagram videos and stories from them in their hotel rooms. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it, look, it doesn't look that great. And they're talking about how hot it is, which is another factor about how difficult things are because, you know, the Japan, Japan Olympic Committee, they lied about like how hot it was going to be. And so like that is another factor that is sort of making this, it's like, man, should we really be supporting this? It's like, this is something that like we should, normally this is a celebration, but it just doesn't feel like something that we should be celebrating, right? Um, in that, in that story that Matoko Rich wrote for the New York Times covering the opening ceremony, she quoted a professor from the University of Tokyo who said, I can't really think of any meaning or significance of why we are doing all this. And, yeah, you know, I think the absence of fans, look, we've lived through a year of no fans. Um, and we accepted that in all of our sports. You know, so maybe this shouldn't feel any different or we shouldn't be reacting any differently. But what, you know, ultimately all sports, professional sports, are driven by television revenue. Um, but there is something about the Olympics that is so nakedly um, about this because it contrasts with their alleged philosophy of what's important. Um, you know, there are no logos in the Olympic arenas and athletes have to put tape over stuff um, to hide their sponsors. So it's, it's this, it, it becomes even more clear when 
sports are devoid of what makes them normally sports at the Olympics. Um, you know, and because I think we're all brainwashed a little bit that this is a festival of sport, right? That, that, and fans are part of that festival. We can delude ourselves into thinking like, oh, we got to play the baseball season because it's important for history and the record. But when it comes to the Olympics, I think there's a, a tendency to believe that there is something nobler um, and that there is a, a, you know, this weirdness of this every four years doing this global event um, that we can, you know, sort of lose ourselves in that and having nobody watching it and cheering does make it seem really weird. I would push back on that in a couple of ways. Like, number one, no matter how craven this whole exercise is and how, like, fundamentally empty it feels, you have athletes who you can't help root for and for mm -hmm. whom this is the culmination of life's work work and you can't um you know it's like we'll we'll talk about this with with college football there there's some aspects of it that's like i don't want to let the bad people <laughs> and the bad things here ruin the good things and mm. the good people. And they're, you know, like reading about Lee Kiefer, the American woman who won gold in fencing, who's in medical school and has only been training two days a week with their husband in their basement. And they built a fencing pist in their, in their basement and seeing her joy in winning this. And then like, having the like kind of pleasure of going back and seeing something um, and then like reading about the person and like reading about what they've gone through. Um, the experience of like how I consumed her victory and looking at the highlights and reading about it is absolutely the same as I would have right. consumed it in any other Olympics. And that I think is a thing that's maybe under discussed is that, and, and especially in a, a tape delay Olympics when we're here in the U S is how a lot of the Olympics are actually consumed in retrospect when you like know what happened and then you want to go back and like look more deeply into a person or into a sport or into, you know, even going back and watching the event later. And that just, that feels very similar to me. Um, with this Olympics as it has in any other Olympics. But that's human nature, right? I mean, that's our ability to say this is fun despite the organization. I mean, it comes back to that same, you know, same conundrum that we face watching the NFL if you're concerned about brain injury. Um, it's all part of the same uh, debate. Um, and, yeah, I mean, like, my one of my favorite moments so far was the Tunisian swimmer, uh, Ahmed Hafnaoui, who was the had the slowest time made it into the finals in the 400 meter freestyle 18 years old not exactly from a country that wins a boatload of uh of of swimming medals and he wins and there's this fantastic video of the family watching which is just basically for the last 200 meters screams um, and then he delivers this delightful interview with NBC, which we can play a clip from. Ahmed, you qualified eighth. What just happened? <laughs> I just can't believe that. It's uh, it's amazing. I feel better in the water this morning than yesterday. And that's it. 
I'm Olympic champion now. I'm Olympic champion now. I mean, when I covered the Olympics in Athens, I did a piece about people that finished last. And the, again, I'm always reminded of that, that for these competitors, it just matters being there. And I think we have to respect that, like you said, Josh, that these stories are resonant because of, you know, when we learn what these people go through and where they come from and how they got there, it is touching and meaningful and inspiring. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't know if I have to respect that. Uh, you know, and, 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 and the reason I'll say that is because, um, you know, I mean, yes, it is obviously the culmination of life's work to qualify and compete in the Olympics. Uh, I would never deny that. But, like, right now we're in a public global health crisis. And if people are not as excited about that or any of these other events or people are not quite as engaged or or even more attuned to the fact that this is a, you know, billions dollar boondoggle, um, then I think that that's okay. And I think that it's okay for people to be like, well, you know what? I just think that this is disgusting and I don't want to watch it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I should admit though, that my interest is a little muted early on. Like the challenge for me will be when track starts, right? Like when, once, once track starts, then it'll be like, okay, like, do I actually give a shit about all the stuff I've been talking or, you know, it's kind of like college football and which we'll talk about too is like, I know that college football is just a cesspit. You know what I mean? Like it's just terrible. Like the people involved, all the money, but then, you know, you put, you know, TCU versus, you know, Kansas State on at 11 o'clock on Saturday. And I'm like, well, fuck it, man. I got to watch this, right? So <laughs> you will not put your principles <laughs> aside for swimming and fencing. This much, this much we know. Yeah, right. I just like, yeah, my, my principles are only as strong as my interest in this, in, in, in the individual sports. But, um, you know, but, then, you know, again, I, I, I want these athletes to enjoy it and then I have a great time. But I also can't get past the fact that in addition to putting their own health at risk, they're putting a whole bunch of other people's health at risk. Um, by participating in this. And like, that's just sort of hard to overlook, at least for me. But like I said, we'll see when like Shelly Ann Frazier is running the hundred in a couple of weeks. Or, you know, we get to see our boy, you know, Noah Lyles, Mr. 200, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, my calibrations on all this stuff will change. And even, you know, I've even found myself like I watched the three, three, uh, three on three, uh, women's game against Mongolia, which I mean, first of all, that was just amazing because I, I literally had been talking about this with my wife. I was like, you know what? This is a couple weeks ago. I was like, I've never heard of Mongolia having a national team in anything, like in the Olympics my entire life. Like maybe I just missed it. And then I just saw, you know, Kelsey Plum and the U.S. women's uh, three on three team, like play these poor, overwhelmed women from Mongolia in three on three. And I was like, ah, okay. And I fi- now I've finally seen Mongolia get its Olympic moment. So that part of it is kind of cool. I can't deny. Um, but you know, I, I don't. I don't know that like we individually have to respect everyone's journey here because like, you know, I mean, people get to feel the way they want to feel. And, you know, if you feel like this is a little too much and we don't deserve this sort of celebration right now, then you need to go on and lean into that. All right, let's take a quick break and then talk about some more individual journeys that Joel may or may not respect. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Stefan, you alluded to it in the intro. Um, one of the big storylines of the opening week, I guess, if you extend it back to the American uh, women's soccer team's opening loss to Sweden, sort of disappointing performances or um, underwhelming. I don't want to say uninspiring. Maybe Joel was uninspired. I'm always inspired when I see the the stars and stripes. But um, 3 nothing loss to Sweden by the USWNT. The opening game, U.S. men's basketball team loses to France. Um, and the biggest surprise of all, U.S. women's gymnastics finishing second in qualification behind whatever the hell they're calling Russia in these Olympics. Um, so where I would want to start with that is with men's basketball. And I feel like I'm at the stage, both with the, you know, whatever cycle we're in dream team wise, and also where we are international basketball wise, where it feels like it would be kind of solipsistic to focus on what's wrong with American basketball. And that sort of conversation we have whenever it is that we're in one of these down cycles, because they're really good players on this team. They clearly care about being there. Devin Booker, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday wouldn't have gone um, you know, immediately on a plane from the finals to Tokyo if they were just going through the motions. And something clearly isn't working with this team, but it does. I mean, hopefully, I guess we can just like move past this idea that there needs to be some sort of like big referendum on the state of American basketball or in the state of USA basketball whenever, um, you know, there's a loss like this. And it just feels like there are going to be more losses coming, given that there have been three already, both in the Olympics and in the exhibition season. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing that just sort of exasperates me is that we tend to not care about the U.S. men's basketball team unless they lose. And, you know, other people have said this before, but if you sort of monitor this over social media, in a lot of ways, people... <sighs> I'm not going to say that they enjoy watching the U.S. men's basketball team lose, but they there's some sort of glee, like comeuppance, um, which is not something that happens with most of our other national teams. And I'll let people think about the reasons why that might be. But is the sentiment you're talking about, like these pampered athletes don't care enough yeah. and they just want to go and get their gold medal and they don't play like team basketball yeah. like these other countries? Well, yeah. And I mean, the U.S. men's and women's basketball teams are pretty much, I, I mean, if, if there's a more dominant national program in our country, I don't know what it is, right? Like, you know, we can count, we can remember their losses, which says something about their dominance in the history of the game. And yet, like, it just doesn't engender the sort of support 
or jingoism or anything else that like you'd expect. Like usually Americans are excited about being dominant in sports. Um, but they're just not as excited about the men's basketball team. And like, I, th- I mean, I, I don't mean to like, um, take a sample of people from social media, but like in general, like the tenor of the coverage, um, and enthusiasm around the team is not what you would expect for a dominant American program. And, uh, so that's what I think about when I see them lose. Uh, I just, I'm like, oh shit, man. Like it, all it does is, lessen the incentive for our best players to want to do this in the first place. I'm not sure that's true though, because didn't, wasn't there this huge upsurge in interest in the best players in the NBA after they lost in 2004? Isn't that what kind of relaunched the program and led to these last three undefeated Olympics? I mean, that was 17 years ago though. I mean, a lot has changed since then. And it was like it, by 2004, we were 12 years into the professional, you know, the NBA player experiment. Like now we're in another generation of it. And, um, I mean, LeBron doesn't have a reason not to be there. Like, I mean, he's, you know, promoting space jam. Steph Curry has never been an Olympic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and never played on an Olympics team. And he passed, you know, and like this is supposed to be one of the biggest stars in the NBA, the history of basketball, and he didn't want to play. Um, I, I think there's something to that, like that maybe it will change or maybe we'll revamp the men's program again at some point. But I, I do think that like the way that this team is covered and the way that we think about them makes it not that an appealing an option. Um mm. But yeah, I mean, I watched that game on Sunday, even after I knew it. And I was just like, I mean, to you guys, to the larger point, I was like, oh, this isn't even the same game as the NBA. Like, it just looked totally different. Like, the, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I'm, I'm watching them play it. I'm like, that doesn't look like Kevin Durant. That doesn't look like Damian Lillard. You know, they're a mess. They're missing open shots. Like, something is off. Well, not to get too prosaic, but there are factors at play here, right? I mean, it is a little bit of a different game. Um, the refs aren't going to call the kinds of fouls that NBA players typically get called. Um, is that why James Harden isn't there? Just trying to make sure that Joel's got a good connection today. That's all. You can keep going. Well, I guess, I guess Zion didn't make it, by the way. Josh, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, Zion would have been useful. Why wasn't he American enough to support the team? <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Stefan. Um, yeah, the... Maybe this roster wasn't constructed particularly well. You know, France had two big guys that basically did a lot of damage in the paint, and the U.S. had no real way to counter that. You know, they threw up a lot of threes and didn't make them because they were reluctant to drive the lane. Wait, Stefan, by the way, you said France has two big guys. Like, (laughs) NBA players are so used to Rudy Gobert. Like, it was just two months ago that people were like, Rudy Gobert is like, he's holding the jazz back, and now all of a sudden he is the anchor of the team that is well because i guess international basketball is different and come on vincent poirier though you know i think he was the difference maker there they also have a a seven footer named fall who's not related to taco fall as you pointed out (laughs) fall apparently is like smith um in cameroon so there are a lot of falls there are three i discovered seven foot plus basketball playing guys named fall okay so here's the case for Olympic basketball and for what for kind of rooting for and enjoying the struggles of the U.S. men's basketball team. It is a different game, and these guys are supremely talented. And watching them, this all-star team, kind of struggle and try to figure it out is interesting. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see if even if you're just an NBA fan and don't really care about this, um, 
it's fun to kind of see how the pecking order ends up working on these teams, like who ends up deferring to who and who ends up taking the shots, even if it doesn't end up working. That's just like an interesting dynamic to watch play out on the court. Yeah. And well, I mean, Patty Mills is the Dame Lillard of Olympic basketball, apparently. So, But also just like seeing guys who are role players in the NBA, like Patty Mills, or guys like who couldn't even stick in the NBA, like Nando DiColo, like have an opportunity to like take these outsized roles with their national teams. Evan Fournier scored 28 points for France. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're like a big NBA fan, um, I mean, I remember like watching like Spain, Rudy Fernandez is mm-hmm. like one of the the more entertaining <laughs> basketball experiences. Um, and, you know, I didn't get a chance to see Luca score 48 points, but that actually might be the reason to watch Olympic basketball um, this year is to like, see if Luka Doncic can lead Slovenia to a gold medal. Like that, that will be a fascinating watch for me um, to see him like try to mow down this tournament. And and I, I totally agree with you, Josh. And I think, I think that does explain in part why, you know, we don't get exercised anymore when the U S is challenged. Um, I mean, I love sort of like calling up the rosters of these teams and going, Oh my God, that guy plays for the heat. Wow. Never heard of him. Um, you know, that, that dude was in the NBA for a minute and that is entertaining. And it does the, it is sort of the, this, the, the way Olympic basketball is played, international rules are played. It helps democratize the sport. And, you know, the disadvantage that the United States has is that they don't play together at all. And this this year in particular, the schedule conspired against these guys. I mean, three players got on planes and showed up overnight. Drew Holiday played, I don't know how many minutes, but he was the best player on the floor for the United States um, against France, which is not saying very much, but he was. Yeah. In the parlance of P.J. Tucker, Drew Holiday as a dog. Like, I was just impressed that he was willing to give that that level of effort and that he made that much of a difference, which sort of speaks to the larger point that we've been making. That right. Olympic basketball is just weird. You know, you don't know who's going to be that dude or who, like, again, Oscar Schmidt. I'm old enough to remember, you know, Oscar Schmidt, who's one of the greatest players in the history of basketball, never played a minute in the NBA, um, but like by in choice. the international game. Yeah, by choice, by choice. But in the international game, like, you can become a beast and it has nothing to do with, you know, the pecking order in the NBA. But I mean, okay, so we feel this way about U.S. basketball. But people don't feel this way about U.S. women's gymnastics, which has been just as dominant in the last, you know, 30 years or so. And they finished second in the prelims to Russia and everybody is panicked. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, God, the Americans might lose. That's, ter- that's terrifying. That's scary. Like, like, like people are not like we have a lot of advantages in gymnastics, maybe not quite the same that we have in basketball because we actually invented basketball. But um, in gymnastics, people don't have. Uh, you know, that wonder, like, wow, let's see, Simone Biles isn't doing quite as well as she normally does. That's fascinating <laughs> to watch. Like, people panic more, and understandably so. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a good point. I mean, the dynamics there are very different because in gymnastics, this is the one event. I, I mean, sure, people watch the World Championships and the U.S. Championships and the Olympic trials, but this is the one event for gymnastics that everything builds to. You know, the Steph Curry of gymnastics, I guess Simone Biles is the Steph Curry and the LeBron and the Giannis of gymnastics <laughs> is not going to skip because she just doesn't feel like going to the Olympics. Like everybody is there. And so it just, it does feel bigger and more important and more telling when any small thing happens. Um, 
Let's talk about Simone Biles for a minute. I mean, again, this is a television show. This is broadcast on tape delay. It's very packaged. And, you know, some it was, of it's live. Some of, some of it's live, but some the, of it's live because NBC, you know, ensured that the, the Olympics would be scheduled for prime time. So we got the 13 hour time difference with Tokyo. So there are events in the morning Tokyo time that will be shown in prime time. So yeah, it's not an entirely taped Olympics. No, but like the women's gymnastics qualification was repackaged for prime time. And it was very telling and mm-hmm. notable that the Simone Biles feature was about her coming forward as a sexual assault survivor, talking about the Larry Nasser case and and her being assaulted by him she was critical of usa gymnastics in that piece and you know i guess credit to nbc for running that but the way in which she has become the face of these olympics both for her outspokenness for her bravery but also for her feats of athleticism and we all have short memories but it feels bigger than even with somebody like Michael Phelps. Um, and like we talked about name, image, and likeness in the show. Feels like Simone Biles should be getting a cut of this ad revenue. And I, I mean, I'm sure she's she's doing fine with, with endorsements, but the extent to which these games are built around her, and this is a billion-something-dollar enterprise, the extent to which it all kind of hinges on her her fame, her marvelousness, her willingness to like share her story and open up and allow herself to be the center of it with all the kind of scrutiny um, that comes with that. It's just really, it's just really incredible because yeah, we've talked about um, this, this kind of this beast that just like can't be stopped even by a global pandemic. And it's just like so much of it, at least in the U S is around this four foot eight woman. Yeah. Going back to your point earlier, Joel, about how we don't necessarily root for the basketball team to win, but everybody is behind the gymnastics team. And NBC, for milking the drama of the preliminaries and Biles having three big missteps in gymnastics, you know, relative gymnastics um, terms, during her events, um, could not be thrilled about this. Like, apparently the entire team just sort of didn't do interviews after the prelims. You know, Biles comes into this not sort of joyful and giddy about the Olympic experience, but pretty bitter about still doing this. She's doing this for herself. Uh, Juliet McCurr of the New York Times did a profile of Biles that ran over the weekend, and she writes in the piece that, you know, when when she asked Biles to name the happiest moment of her career, Biles answered, honestly, probably my time off. And at a different point in the interview, she says, I'm going to go out there and represent the USA, represent World Champions Center, which is her training facility, and represent black and brown girls over the world. At the end of the day, I'm not representing USA Gymnastics. I mean, there is a tension here um, at the end of you know, at the likely end of her career that is palpable and not doing well, at least initially, you know, it sets up some comeback drama, but it also casts a light on the problems of the sport and how it destroys these athletes. 
Yeah, man. watching her at the Olympic trials, and I don't want to say that, you know, I'm some sort of mind reader or whatever, but it just, <laughs> I was worried about this for her and that it just seemed really heavy. Like this, not, like you said, Stefan, that there's not a lot of joy, it seems, in this journey for her. And there's like, it's actually sort of amazing to think about how, Easily, she's carried the burden of being so much better than everybody else and like this entire enterprise resting, you know, on her shoulders, right? But that you'd imagine that at a certain point that it would become overwhelming. And it seems like, like right now it's happening, um, at the most inopportune time. And, and, I, and I hate to, like, I, um, I'm going to name check this, um, podcast again. Uh, the heavy metals is ESPN's 30 for 30 on the Corollis and their influence on, uh, you know, uh, Team USA Gymnastics. And the last time the Corollis stepped away from the Olympic team or the U.S. national team, you saw this same sort of like, you know, you know, a disappointing follow-up, right? Like, wh- whereas the Americans had been dominant in years past and a lot more crisp, they don't quite look that way. And it doesn't feel like quite the same team. And you hate to think that, like, you know, all of Team USA's glory over the past 20, 25 years is, you know, Caroli fueled. But um, watching this happen again under these circumstances, I couldn't just help but think like, man, what is going on? And is this like, you know, how much of a role did the Carolis play in the success of this team? And like, can they, can Team USA be the dominant, one of the dominant programs in the world again without them? I don't know. Um and I mean, again, they haven't lost yet. I mean, they're still finished second. That's still good, but it's not quite the same as it used to be. And I just wonder about that going forward. Yeah, and it is important to note, like, Simone Biles qualified first for right. for the all-around. And it just seems like, on the one hand, the burden on her is so heavy, and there is this sort of unacknowledged possibility that she could lose. And on the other hand, it just seems impossible. Like, even when you acknowledge that, like, any athlete has to go out and do it like nobody's just just wins when they show up the way that she has designed her program the amount of difficulty the fact that she can stumble three times and still be in first place she has due to her greatness she has this kind of margin for error but it just makes one wonder and especially stefan given what you said about her struggle to find joy despite bringing joy to so many people like Will she be able to find joy and will we be able to find joy in a performance that brings her gold that isn't perfect or doesn't seem perfect or up to, you know, the the possibilities that she's created? So it'll just be interesting to watch and see how that plays out. Right, you want to wrap up this segment to a little potpourri, guys? Anything that you watched over the weekend that you enjoyed? Any of the new sports like skateboarding? I found street skateboarding to be really terrible, actually. And um, I don't know if it's because of the design of the competition, where if you don't hit a trick, it can get wiped out. Like you get a few like kind of mm-hmm. freebies, and maybe that encourages people to try harder stuff. But it's just like, is anybody going to land on the skate? Like, aren't you supposed to land on the skateboard? Like, what is go- what is going on here? Um, I, I found it to be kind of bizarrely underwhelming for a sport, the entire purpose of which was like, let's bring in something exciting that everybody's going to want to 
watch and like extreme whatever it's like no this not it's not you need to you need to figure figure this thing out it didn't help that the that the most famous men's skateboarder Nigel Houston who's got a crazy backstory life story um didn't didn't land his last four tricks metal went to japanese skater yuto horigome who grew up in the same neighborhood where the the skateboarding parks were built in in tokyo um so yeah i was not exactly captivated and it led to the point where you know nbc has uh tony hawk as sort of their skateboard color guy who comes in and talks to to Mike Tirico during the, the studio portion of the evening. And he was even saying sort of, the rest of it's going to be great. There's going to be big air and ramps <laughs> and people are going to get way up and you're going to see some crazy tricks. Um, so I think there was a, a recognition that maybe this wasn't the most auspicious debut. Yeah, when even Tony Hawk is like, yeah, whatever, then you know, <laughs> you know that something isn't quite right. Coming up next, Will Texas and Oklahoma leave the Big 12 for the SEC. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about which Olympic sports are the worst and the best. Coming off of Slate's comprehensive rankings of all 339 events. Where do those rankings go wrong? Where are they oh so right? What's overrated? What's underrated? What is laser sailing? To hear that segment, you have to be a Slate Plus member. And that membership will give you access to Slate's robust Olympics coverage in audio and text. If you want to subscribe for the Olympics... It's only $1 for the first month. It's a good time to give Slate Plus a try. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. Okay, so we're recording this segment Monday morning, and a few hours ago, the University of Texas and the University of Oklahoma released a joint statement saying that they will not renew their claim to the Big 12's media rights. Here's the final sentence of that statement. Both universities will continue to monitor the rapidly evolving collegiate athletics landscape as they consider how best to position their athletics programs for the future. Long story short, UT and OU have essentially confirmed media reports from last week that they plan to leave the Big 12, their conference home, for the past 25 years and pursue membership in the SEC. So, Josh, this has been a year of unprecedented change in major college sports from the new 12-team playoff to the dawn of name, image, and likeness for athletes, to a one-time transfer rule. Doesn't it make sense that this was the next big development? Yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense in retrospect or seems obvious in retrospect. But if you had asked me before these reports came out within the last week, I wouldn't have guessed that this exact thing was going to happen and it was going to happen now. I mean, the Big 12's deal um, runs through 2025, but... And I think this is what you're alluding to, Joel. It's just felt like there's been 
a kind of steady drip, but now kind of starting to get more <laughs> into the flood range of things that are all kind of converging around a major reorganization and reshaping of big time college sports, and I guess particularly football. And this is a really big deal, just these two enormous programs moving to the SEC. If it just ended there and it was like, all right, you've got the 16-team super conference, you have these major kind of tentpole programs for this sport and for all of college sports kind of aligning with these other major tentpole programs. Like that in itself is like an, a major story that we would talk about. But it just feels really, really hard not to just start to get ahead of ourselves and be like, all right, maybe the SEC is going to secede from from the NCAA. We we don't like to talk about secession when it when it comes to the South, but so maybe I should use a different term. Maybe the SEC, <laughs> maybe the SEC will break off and start its own entity. Maybe Clemson and Florida State will join. Maybe Ohio State and blah, 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 blah. like your mind just kind of starts spinning out all these scenarios. But I feel like Stefan, if you're a college president, if you're the NCAA right now, like you're not thinking about, oh, I guess Texas and Oklahoma are going to the SEC. How interesting. You're probably thinking about like, all right, I guess this is the end for whatever era we've been in in the last few years of college sports. Because I think we're all used to the idea that like with the college football playoff, which has taken 20 plus years to evolve into something resembling an actual playoff, um, for a long time, Everybody has sort of done the sort of, you know, lined up schools according to where they belong geographically and financially and competitively and figured that at some point there's going to be like a 64 team, you know, super conference with four divisions or whatever that in some structure there's going to be a complete and total sort of geometric realignment in college sports because television demands it, money demands it, revenue demands it, and you can't be the school sitting on the outside waiting to be invited. So it'll be like it'll be like pro football. It'll be like the AFC and the NFC, and they'll be right. the West and the Central and the East, and it won't have these sort of like traditional... You know, that's the thing with college football. Like the reason that I, I think we like the sport Joel, or one of the reasons is that there are things about it that we've been watching since childhood or since other people's childhoods. There are these rivalries, there are these traditions, there are these things that you can point to and look at and say, you know, in this series, which started in, you know, 1902. Um, but if we were going to start the sport from scratch, it wouldn't be organized in the way that it's currently organized. And it, and Joel, in like a lot of ways, it does feel like we're starting from scratch with the name, image, and likeness stuff. And so maybe it, it's just a time when everything gets thrown out and, and we start over. Yeah. And I mean, just, I mean, just for a second, I mean, man, just imagine Tulane, you know, they remember the SEC, you know, about a half century ago. Sawani. What a bad, what, what a bad, <laughs> what, they didn't have a lot of the presence there. Yeah. 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 Not a lot of presence from Sawani and Tulane. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing, you know, we've talked about this stuff for the past 30 years, ever since it was really Arkansas that kicked off this new wave of college sports where they left the Southwest conference and went to the sec and then steadily, 
And surely, like, there's been this shift in the game. And we all the things that we said that were going to happen are sort of coming true, right? For all these years, it seems sort of fanciful, but, oh, playoffs. Like, someday they're going to have playoffs. And, like, there was this delay, but we finally are getting a playoff and then an expanded playoff. And then, well, it's inevitable that players are going to eventually get money somehow, some way. And we're in that moment now. And now the belief in the super conference where, you know, all the big – you know, the 64, 65 power programs in the, in the sport were going to team up and join a league and sort of leave behind the Kent States and the Wyoming's um, and the Utah States behind. Like, because, I mean, all they're doing is reifying what we already know is apparent that there is these two, a lot of these schools aren't competing for the same stuff. Buffalo, Army, uh, you know, Middle Tennessee State, they're not competing for the same stuff as like Tennessee and Alabama and in Ohio State. So like And it's also not Hollywood. like NCAA men's basketball where those teams provide a sort of like color and atmosphere that makes the sport better by their presence in the first round or sometimes even the second round of the NCAA tournament. Like those those teams in college football bring nothing to um Alabama and and Clemson they don't I, I mean it feel it feels harsh but it's just true well they do play them once a year right and right. get a little bit of a payday so they do benefit right. from that relationship but no yeah and those are games that season ticket holders resent having to pay for well again again remember when central florida had that run and there was talk of them getting you know they were undefeated for like basically you know two years in a row and people were pissed at the idea that they would be involved. They didn't want to see central Florida because like there was this understanding that, okay, that's a cute little story, but like, you know, don't involve yourselves in these big boy matters essentially. But isn't that changing with the 12 team playoff that those teams actually are getting, I mean, not like, you know, Kent state, but some of these teams are getting a seat. Well, I mean, we'll see, we'll actually see if that holds up. Right. Like that, I mean, that is the plan right now, but it doesn't seem like Alabama and SEC and all these other schools are like that interested in sharing um, the windfall that would come if they reorganize largely. Because, I mean, if if we do get these super conferences, like then I would be curious to see what the 12-team playoff actually means in the whole scheme of things. Well, the 12 teams will come from the 64 teams. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think anybody <laughs> yeah, right. is deluded into thinking that suddenly there's going to be like some magnanimousness on the part of the 64. So, oh, we really need to, you know, retroactively make sure that we include Buffalo and Cincinnati, I mean, or whoever. Right. So, Joel, we need to spend at least like four to eight hours talking about the Texas pettiness yeah. of this. And the reason that this came out was because it was broken by like the Texas A&M beat reporter at the Houston Chronicle. Right. And right. A&M has been desperate to do anything that it possibly can to prevent this from happening. And I thought it was actually remarkable that the, AD of Texas A&M at SEC Media Days openly said he didn't, maybe it's not remarkable, but it just seemed, it seemed kind of sad to me that <laughs> they were like, we thought we had the, we thought the, we had the SEC all to ourselves. Yeah. This isn't fair. We don't, I mean, it made it seem like they didn't want the competition, which like, obviously they don't want the competition. It's good for them to have, you know, be the only school in that state that can say we're in the SEC for recruiting purposes but a&m just it fancies itself as like this big bully on the block with all of its money and its huge stadium and um the fact that it would say like you know we're we're scared we don't want this you know texas to come here and like ruin our fun 
I thought, given their like kind of self conception, I. The, just the entire entity of Texas A&M is funny to me. Or that there's a gentleman's agreement among the SEC <laughs> schools that one school can veto um, the addition of any other school from their state. Um, they're rolling it all out to stop this from happening. So, Joel, explain to us. It's like the blue slip system for uh, federal judgeships, Stefan. Right. It's th- that's the analogy that we're all thinking of. No, I mean, I, th- I think that you know, first of all, poor Aggies, right? Uh, that's a Texas chain. If you guys are from Texas, you know about poor Aggies. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it does seem sad, but it's not all too dissimilar from South Carolina not wanting Clemson to join the SEC or Florida not wanting Florida State or Miami to join the SEC or, or Georgia not wanting Georgia Tech in the SEC, right? Like They're, they're sort of defending their territory. But um, I think Bamani Jones made this good point, even though he is a Horns fan, and I find that objectionable. But he was just like, essentially, A&M, by saying, you know, that they don't want Texas and that they would protect their identity as the only team from Texas in the SEC, well, that means you kind of don't have an identity, right? Or you don't have an identity that you're excited about, Um that you know, the only thing that distinguishes you, the only advantage, the only thing, the only way that you can make things even with Texas is by being in a league that they're not a part of. And that's sort of I guess of, that's my point, Joel. Like yeah. just even if you don't believe it, from yeah. like a marketing and school pride perspective, wouldn't you be like, bring it on? Like you think you no. can come in here no. and do this? Like we're 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 gonna take you down. Well, think about how many people are tired of Texas too. I mean, actually I mean, Texas is the reason that the Big 12 broke up in the first place, like in the way that it did. Like Nebraska got tired of their shit, right? Um, Texas A&M and Missouri. I mean, consider Missouri left the Big 12. Uh, they were sick of Texas's shit. So everybody eventually gets sick of Texas's shit, and they don't want to be a part of that. Well, isn't Texas sick of the Big 12 shit? They are. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the thing is, it's like this this rapacious appetite for revenue at Texas and that like they believe that they're different and distinctive from everybody else and that they don't have to share and that their brand is worth so much more. And so, yeah, they, they are openly resentful of Texas tech and Baylor and TCU um, and all these other schools in Texas, because they're like, why should we share with you? And I mean, to an extent they have a point, but um, this is what I would say about Texas. And so, when Arkansas left the Southwest Conference in the early 90s, I think people weren't quite aware of the money and potential of the SEC, but there was a sense that like there was a chance for them to sort of distinguish themselves from this school, this league of Texas schools. But how fun is it to be rich but irrelevant? And that's what I think Texas should be wary of. That like, okay, great, you've got all this money. Like money is not a problem for Texas, even in the Big 12. They print money. But like, you may get what you wish, but like for your fans, your fans don't give a shit if you have all this extra money to build a nice new locker room or some new luxury boxes. They want you to be competitive. And if you go over into the SEC and get your ass kicked, and Texas is going to get its ass kicked because it is not like for all of its branding, we're talking about a program that has won three Big 12 championships since the league's inception 25 years ago. It's won one national championship since desegregation. So like... We're not talking about a team that is going to go over there and run shit. And like, how excited will their fans be to go? You know, I, I mean, at the way that these leagues are swelling, you know, eight and eight. Uh, you know, how how fun how fun will it be to be a Texas fan when you're going eight and eight every year? You don't think the SEC is going to have a seventeenth game? They're just going to stick with the with the yeah, sixteen. Yeah, I mean, they may go to seventeen. Yeah, eventually, but yeah, not quite. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I just think that, like, isn't it more fun when you matter? And um, Arkansas had to find that out the hard way. Arkansas holds a totally different place in the national imagination now than it did 30, 40 years ago. Like, now it's just another team. It's South Carolina. It's Kentucky. And does Texas want to risk that by doing that? Uh, maybe they do. I mean, maybe there's just not enough money. Maybe they want to stick it to Texas A&M. Or maybe they're, they're, maybe they're just thinking strategically. You know, this is a time the Supreme Court basically announced that we're not buying any of college sports' bullshit anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is football, but it does have, you know, trickle-down effects on every other sport at these schools. So if you're positioning yourself for the coming divorce from the NCAA and a future where you are self-regulating, yeah, you want to be in the most prominent position possible. But Stefan, wouldn't that be, wouldn't Texas be doing that anyway? Like no matter where they go, they're still going to be Texas, right? Like there, th- any realignment of college football it, of, of, of the powers is going to include Texas no matter where they are, right? You know what I mean? Like the, they can go to the Big Ten, they can go to the Pac-12, they'll be welcomed anywhere. Why the SEC, I guess is what I, I, I guess I'm sort of interested in. I don't know because they want to be in the most powerful conference in sports, the one that's yeah, going to draw the most revenue, and they're going to they're going to help enhance their television package. If you're not that worried about going eight and eight, and you're more concerned about the size of the check that you're getting cut from ESPN, then this makes all the sense in the world. The thing I find really interesting, Josh, um, and maybe I shouldn't, or maybe it's just entertaining, is the level of deviousness and duplicity and backstabbing in college sports administration. Um, yeah, this is all done secretively, and everybody is sanctimonious, and everybody is shocked. But you know, Oklahoma State in one second, if the SEC called, would be yeah, like where do we sign? Um, instead of defending the Big Twelve as this, you know, s- this sacred union of 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 institutions, um, and then you've got like the 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 Pac twelve saying, oh, we're not interested in, in in expanding or taking any teams from any conference. But you know that if they got phone calls, which I'm sure they are, they are listening quite attentively. The smoke blowing and bullshitting in college sports administration is just is just remarkable. How come we haven't talked about Oklahoma? Is it because they're just <laughs> they're the more successful uh, team in a, both a long term and a short term sense? Is it just because the psychodynamics of the like whole Oklahoma situation aren't particularly interesting, and the Oklahoma Oklahoma State rivalry and the Oklahoma State's hurt feelings here don't really register for us in any? particular way yeah i just think that everybody knows that texas is the one that's been driving this because they're the ones that are constantly dissatisfied with the arrangement that they've been in like the the arrangement that they've created for themselves they are tired of it and i you know it's funny Stefan, you made this point about like the duplicity among sports administrators or whatever think about this texas's athletic director is chris del conti he's the one that is presumably at the forefront of this move to the SEC. Well, Chris Del Conte was the former TCU athletic director, and he's the one that helped get them into the Big 12 a decade ago. Um, and so it's like, it just it just shows you just how quick, you know, your allegiances and like your motivations can change. Inside the mm-hmm. span of like eight years, you can be like, you know what? The TCU isn't working for me. Let's get the hell out of here. Let's, you know, let's let's go, you know, one one division over. But yeah, I don't, 
I mean, because I, I think, but back to your point, Josh, I think that that's the reason is that like te- everybody knows that this is more Texas and that Oklahoma is sort of following in behind Texas. But, you know, it's maybe it's harder to hate Oklahoma. I don't know. Like maybe, te- you know, Oklahoma isn't quite as obnoxious or, you know, presumptuous as UT. And so people don't want to hold it against them. And- or maybe Oklahoma just wants to go wherever Texas is so they can, you know, ensure that they'll have another win on their schedule Ooh, every year. There you go. Isn't it weird though? Josh, that was just Josh, for you. That was just for you, buddy. I appreciate that. And also, isn't it weird? Josh? I mean, we're acting like Oklahoma and Texas have only been in the same league for the last twenty-five years. Like this is not like the historical norm. Like they do not have to have their fates tied together. They've just decided I'll- the Red River Shootout, the Cotton Bowl, yeah. the State Fair, yeah. Texas State Fair. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I would just wrap up by saying the timeline on all of this is very unclear. There's like an eighteen-month kind of exit clause, all this stuff is negotiable. Um, but it does seem like there's a, a window here where two things can happen. Number one, just maximal awkwardness of them just like being in this conference for at least a little while longer where they clearly don't want to be and nobody is going to want them to be, which is always kind of entertaining. But also this sort of lag time, by the time they do or don't get to the SEC, so much other stuff is going to have happened. Like, um, the, you know, it, it just feels like we're now on pause Mm -hmm. in major college sports and everybody is like, or, or maybe musical chairs is kind of the, the better analogy where just like every one is just like gonna be shuffling around and trying to find a spot. And maybe it'll be, 2023 when everything shakes out maybe it'll be 2025 but it's you know once it does shake out everything seems like it's going to look very different once you say that you're getting divorced it's kind of hard to come back from that though you know what i mean like i think it's pretty fair to assume that no matter what happens it's real difficult for texas to know you to like come back at any point and be like, you know what? All that SEC well, stuff. Well, the Super League didn't happen, Joel. The Super League That's didn't true. happen. That's true. That's true. I guess it could still happen. I mean, and the thing is, I'm from TCU. I know where we are in this universe, and we'll take them back if they want to come back. Um, so, <laughs> we, I mean, we beat them, you know, seven of the last 10 years. So, <laughs> just a W for us anyway. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hey, Hang Up listeners. Just in time for the Olympics, I want to point you to the latest episode of How To, Slate's podcast hosted by friend of the show, David Epstein. In that episode, David interviews Steve Mesler about how to get over winning a gold medal. It may sound strange how to get over winning a gold medal, but after Steve's bobsled team reached the top of the podium at the 2010 Winter Olympics, it was all downhill from there. Steve talks about his struggles with depression and losing his identity. He also opens up about losing teammates to suicide. It's a rare glimpse into the complicated life of an Olympic gold medalist, with lessons for anyone working toward an all-consuming pursuit. 
Look for How To from Slate wherever you listen to podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. I think my favorite event over the weekend was the uh, women's cycling road race. The woman that won was named Anna Kiesenhofer from Austria, and she wasn't like a favorite. She was self-trained. She didn't have a team. She used to be a pro, but now she's a mathematics professor. Um, But she qualified and was racing anyway. And she was so not considered a threat that when she broke away from the pack, the pack forgot she had broken away from the pack and didn't bother to try to track her down. And she ended up winning going away so much so that the woman that that crossed the finish line second, a Dutch cyclist named Annemiek van Vluten, thought that she had won and threw her arms up in the air in celebration. She had not won. She had lost. And then she blamed the fact that in Olympic cycling, there's no communication permitted with riders. Whereas in pro races, you know, the riders wear earbuds and they can talk to their team and they get updates and you can't do that in the Olympics. Josh, what's your Anna Kiesenhofer? So last week on the new Slate podcast hosted by me, One Year, um, we did an episode about sports. It got dropped into the hang up feed. So you might have seen it, hopefully listened to it. It was about Mary Shane, who broadcast games for the Chicago White Sox baseball team in 1977. It's the story of how she got that job, um, the story of what happened during that year, and the story of what happened after. And it was a story that I wasn't familiar with, somebody that I didn't know about. Um, and it's a totally fascinating story about a pioneer and the challenges that come with being a pioneer. And there are a bunch of different voices in the episode. Um, we have Mary Shane's son, her niece. We have some of her contemporaries. We have the guy from the radio station that hired her. We have Jackie McMullen, who knew her from uh, Boston, where Shane worked after her tenure with the White Sox. Um, but that wasn't all of the interviews that we did. Um, and I wanted to highlight a couple of the folks that we talked to who intersected with Shane's story who um, weren't in that episode, but were just great interviews and fascinating people. The first of them is Leslie Visser, who you might know from her long uh, and storied television career, but she um, started out in newspapers and started out around the same time that Mary Shane started out Um Visser was the first woman ever to be an NFL beat writer for the Boston Globe. She was a Patriots um, beat writer in starting in 1976. So um, got a couple clips from my interview with Leslie Visser. Let us listen to the first one now where she talks about how she got started as a sports writer. I told my mother when I was 10 years old that I wanted to be a sports writer, which did not exist for women. This was 1963. And my mom, instead of saying, oh, you can't do that. You have to be a teacher or a homemaker or a secretary or domestic. She said, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. 
and it gave me this permission to fly. And when I was a sophomore in college, I applied for a Carnegie Foundation grant, which they were given to 20 women in America who wanted to go into jobs that were 95% male, which you think now that can't be. But yes, a woman from Johns Hopkins got it for ophthalmology. A woman from Michigan got it for archaeology. And I got it for being a sports writer. A Carnegie Foundation grant to be a sports writer because it was so male-dominated. That was a... Um, a detail that I didn't know um, about her career or about um, sports writing more generally. But the mid-70s was a time when the profession, um, when women were just kind of getting their starts and just getting opportunities in the profession. And in this next clip, Leslie Visser talks about what it felt like in the mid-1970s when she was just starting out. I would go to NFL games and the credential that I wore right on the credential said no women or children in the press box. <laughs> Pretty diminishing, don't you think? <laughs> I, I was blessed and privileged to have that opportunity, but there were real challenges. There were no um, provisions for equal access after the game, no locker room access. So I had to do all the interviews uh, in the parking lot. And my very first day down at the uh, where the Patriots practiced, I asked the coach, Chuck Fairbanks, something about one of his linebackers. And he just looked at me confused. And he said, why don't you go to lunch with my daughter? You're about the same age. <laughs> and I don't think he was trying to be mean. I think it was just so foreign to him, which I used to factor in every day that this was new to them too. I didn't want to complain because I didn't want the NFL to say, oh, a woman can't do it. And I didn't want the Boston Globe to say, well, we tried, but a woman uh, couldn't do it. Stefan, this is something that I noticed in hearing about Mary Shane, also talking to Leslie Visser and Jackie McMullen and Susan Waldman, just to a person not wanting to be perceived as complaining, um, just wanting to go about their work, wanting to just do their job. And I think it was partly this idea that, that Leslie Visser just articulated that she didn't want to give the NFL or the Boston Globe a reason to fire her, to think that she couldn't do it. But also, I just think that the women who were able to do this, who were able to stay and stick it out and have long careers, were those women who had that attitude, who were able to survive because they were able to put up with things that um, some people maybe couldn't. And they were perceptive, right? That they understood that at that point in time, pushing back would lead to punishment. Like you didn't go to someone and say, I was sexually harassed. Like that was not a, a thing that you could do and keep your job. Right. And by the way, by persevering the way that they did, you know, it's simplistic and a cliche to say, but they opened doors for other people. Um, and you got to the point where women were comfortable going forward and complaining about the lack of access in locker rooms um, and getting that to change. But, you know, we're talking about the early and mid-1970s, and a lot of that stuff doesn't happen until a few years later. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, uh, especially in light of, I guess it was a month ago, that uh, Kathleen O'Brien, you know, former baseball writer uh, for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, wrote about her experience as a Rangers beat writer and being raped, like actually being raped by a baseball player. And she didn't report it, never 
mentioned it until, you know, it, it, it certainly didn't come out publicly until she just wrote that piece. And this is almost 20 years later. So, you know, for as much as things have changed, I mean, it's still like, you know, that progress goes and fits and starts. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, if we talk to a female sports journalist today, they still have a lot of the same challenges that maybe they feel a little bit more empowered to speak up when they're being mistreated, but that's still mm -hmm. like a pervasive part of the culture of sports. And, um, you know, you just think about all the people that are damaged along the way in making history, right? Um, I just, you know, Josh, I mean, the Mary Shane uh, episode was amazing. And I think part of it was because it was so real, like it wasn't a fairy tale that, you know, even even as she got on the cusp of achieving her dreams and it didn't quite work out, like that's just life. Like sometimes things don't work, but it doesn't mean that you can't make an impact even if you don't ultimately achieve all of your dreams or, or you know, fulfill all of your aspirations. Yeah, thanks, Joel. I think that's very true. And to, on your last point, one thing that Leslie Visser told me was we saw it as a marker of success when all of us in this field couldn't send each other Christmas cards. Um, and there was the support network back then. And it was, you know, you had everybody in your Rolodex and you would just, you know, call people on the phone to share tips and share advice. Mm -hmm. But that community and that network is bigger now. And like every woman in sports journalism doesn't personally know every other woman in sports journalism. Um, and so that is a thing that's changed materially. And that is, that is different. And yet, the Houston Astros case, the stories last year about women sports writers being harassed by front office personnel in baseball, you know, this all persists, what, you know. Well, shit stuff in the, the Washington football team. Remember, we had people on talking about football the, team. You know, the, the journalists there, the female journalists there. So, you know, so Leslie Visser and the other pioneers in the early 70s, um, you know, Melissa Ludke from Sports Illustrated was the one that filed the first lawsuit against Major League Baseball demanding access to locker rooms. That was 1978. You know, but what really struck me, Josh, in this truly excellent episode of One Year was how um, Mary Shane was thrust into the role of play-by-play -play and color commentator for the White Sox in 1977. Um, she didn't have a built-up resume. You know, she hadn't sort of worked in the minors. She hadn't been a sports writer for very long. Um, did you sort of come to understand like why the White Sox did this? Sort of the the notion that she was being treated as a token and that this would be good for ratings versus, oh, we really see potential here for her as a broadcaster? Well, if you were going to hire somebody as a token, you wouldn't have hired her because she was a serious sports writer and journalist who perceived herself that way. Um, even if other people talked about her as... You know, they focused on her looks rather than her accomplishments. But so, yeah, I mean, if they did think of it that way, then they miscalculated. And yet, you've pointed out something that is undeniably correct. She did not have the experience that we would expect someone hired into that position to have, which doesn't mean that she couldn't have, have done it and didn't have the talent to do it. But she didn't have the, you know, women weren't getting minor league jobs. Um, they, they weren't being schooled in this stuff. And the White Sox certainly didn't have a plan in place right. to help her out other than, oh, male baseball fans don't like your voice. So yeah, you should get voice lessons. Like this was not an environment where 
um, somebody who was inexperienced was going to get any kind of like help and tutelage in a systematic way. She was really off on her own. Right. So, and you put it in the context of the White Sox at the time owned by Bill Vack, obviously history reputation of doing things for promotional reasons. And I couldn't come away from the story and not think that she was set up to fail. Um, that if they had really taken her seriously, they would have, you know, and valued her potential as a broadcaster and as a journalist, they would have helped her succeed. Um, they would have given her the things, the, the practice and, you know, working at a lower level um, and honing her chops before she is thrust into a major league booth with Harry Carey, of all people. Yeah, I think that was the thing that kind of got me in it. I, I I kept waiting for it to be more sinister, like with Harry Carey, you know, just inviting her on. I was just like, okay, like, he's going to turn out to be the villain here. And he wasn't, but it was just part of a broader infrastructure that just didn't value, like, the contributions of women at the end of the day. Like, it's like, oh, this is quite a lark. Let's have this young lady on. Right. And then it was just like, but then she was disposable. You know what I mean? Which is, you know, I mean, it was delightful to know, hear Harry Carey. I did not know that he had worked for the White Sox. But then by the end of it, I was like, oh, man, come on, dog. You said that her voice was annoying. Stop it. So there was a very high profile woman who worked for the White Sox in that period. And this was another interview that I did that I absolutely loved that um, didn't make it into the episode. Her name was Nancy Faust, and she played the organ for the White Sox and is one of the um, most kind of notable and renowned and famed organ players in stadium history. It's just a fantastic and fascinating and just really fun person. Um, She started out earlier in the 1970s and her Twitter handle is uh, Twitter handle is played 41 because she played uh, for 41 years. Um, Let's listen to Um, Nancy Faust explaining what her um, relationship was with the fans at Comiskey Park and how she did her job. I was totally accessible for the fans. The organ was located in the upper deck. They just had to run up to the organ and say, how about this or how about that? Did you know that um, somebody just dated a woman named Lucille? And did you know that George Brett just had hemorrhoid surgery? And, and, you know, there were just so many things that could happen, like... um, Something could happen on the field. There was a time when a streaker ran out in the field and I was able to play, is that all there is? Or a cat would run out and I'd play, is cat scratch fever? Or a dove would land up on the net and I'd play dove's cry. Or somebody would throw a big blow up doll into the field, onto the field, and then a player would have to pick it up and carry it away. And I'd play getting to know you or just the two of us. There's one lingering question from what you just said is, um, which is, what do you play when someone tells you that George Brett has hemorrhoids? Um, I'd play, I could do it a little bit right now if you'd like. That was, you can't sit down, or I'd play walk right in. Walk right in, sit right down. I love Nancy Fast. Just the most amazing ability to hear a song and be able to play it on the organ. Doesn't read music, actually, but just can play anything that she hears. Um, And in 1977, the same year that Mary Shane did White Sox games on radio and TV, Nancy Faust 
had her like greatest year as an organ player. She invented basically the playing of a song that became a stadium staple. Um, you kind of all of us growing up heard the song in stadiums, but it didn't exist until Nancy Fast started playing it. Um, she's uh, in this next clip. She's going to tell the story of how that happened. When I'd go to the games and I'd listen to the radio. If I heard a song that I thought could be applied in a situation, I, as I'm driving, I could just jot it down at a, at a red light or something. And I probably heard Nana Goodbye and wrote just, I thought, oh, this is a good song because it has goodbye in it. And so when we were playing and vying for first place in 1977, and a picture was taken out of the game, and now the fans were really into it because we're playing Kansas City, and it's a hot summer night, and the fans were just responding to everything i played that song when the picture was taken out and we heard a response that had never been heard in our park or anywhere i think where the fans were all in unison and it was just so great to hear all that that we couldn't let it go yeah can you play a little snippet of that for us now sure How fun is that? ESPN did a feature on her and Nana Goodbye um, not that long ago, which is worth watching. Um, she's also on Cameo if you if you want uh, Nancy Faust to play something for you. But to kind of bring it back to the larger subject here, you know, why was Nancy Faust able to succeed in this way and have a long and storied career? I mean, it brings me to something that Mary Shane's Sun says about Mary Shane being more successful as a writer is that when people read her piece, they didn't hear her voice reading it and were maybe more willing to give her a chance as opposed to, you know, Harry Carey saying that Mary Shane's voice was annoying and all of the other um, sexist things that people said and just not being able to hear her as a person, but just hearing her as a woman who felt like an intruder. Well, I think the same thing applies for Nancy Faust, that people were able to hear her talent and when you hear the the songs that we just heard, um, it just sounds like somebody playing the organ. It doesn't sound like a woman playing the organ in an environment when people were not, uh, a lot of people were not willing to accept that women could do the jobs that men did as well or better. I feel like being behind the organ and having her music speak for her allowed Nancy Faust to have the long career that she deserved. That's our show for today. Our producer this week was Alyssa Eads. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Please subscribe to the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Go listen to One Year 1977 about Mary Shane and all of the other great episodes that Josh is producing. For Joel Anderson and Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.